0: let's turn to jude book of jude right before the book of revelation which we'll get into next time and as they say about the book of revelation it either finds you mad or leaves you mad you know not really but i mean that's what they say sells a book i don't know what but somebody said that and uh so which will not be a problem for this group at all uh because we're way ahead of that curve (laughs) so anyway Jude verse 1 Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James the theme of of the book of Jude is to contend earnestly for the faith Uh, in the face of an apostasy and false teaching that has come into the early church. And so many of the uh, letters that were written in the New Testament were written to uh, come up against false teaching that had infiltrated uh, the church. And I think that sometimes we have to put ourselves back about 2,000 years ago and you know, we live in a, a, a very blessed part of, of California, part of the world, and we are, as much as any place can be a Bible belt in California, we're in the Bible belt. There are a lot of Christians, and there are a lot of churches, and, you know, this person, whatever they, they can something here, and they go over to this church, and this one goes over to that church, and God can do all that that kind of thing and all, but we can get so used to being around Christians and, uh, and, and, uh, not, and, and there being so many of them, because we're so blessed, that we forget sometimes how valuable each and every Christian is. And uh, in the early church, there weren't so many Christians. And, and so for a church to be taken over by false teaching for even one person with the gifting and calling of god in their life to be hijacked away from god into false doctrine represented a major loss for the kingdom and so even though we don't face some of those things as acutely as they did in the early church we we should still recognize that that's that's how dangerous false teaching is and and uh, how uh what the tragedy it is when a church or an even an individual is pulled away by false teaching. Now the the model of uh first century and, and ancient uh letters, Jude follows the same one in that he introduces himself as the writer of the letter immediately. His name is the first word in the letter. There are four Judes or uh Judas in in the New Testament. And, uh, we don't really know which one of those four concretely that this Jude is. We know that, uh, he can only be one of two. And, uh, and there was a, a Judas or a Jude that was one of the apostles. But when Jude writes his letter a little bit further into Um, into the letter in verse um, 17 he speaks about the words that were spoken before by the Apostles and and by the way he frames what he's saying there indicates that he does not consider himself to be one of the Apostles he tells us a little bit further in verse 1 that he is also a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James the only other Jude that this Jude could be would be uh, Jude, the brother of James, who was also the uh, half brother of of Jesus, and uh, and so that's the most likely candidate for the author of of the letter is this jude who was born to joseph and mary after jesus was born sharing the same mother as jesus mary but having different fathers jude being born of joseph and jesus of course being born uh, of the holy spirit now he describes himself a little further here is the bond-servant of Jesus Christ and the word bond-servant it means slave it's the word doulos and the imagery comes from Exodus chapter 21 where if a Hebrew uh, owned another Hebrew as a slave, he could, and slavery was, was rampant in, in early New Testament times and rampant in the Roman Empire and rampant in ancient history. And, and a Jew, if he uh, owned another slave that was uh, another Jew, he could only have him as a slave for six years, and on the seventh year he had to set him free. But if on the seventh year this Jewish slave looked at his master and said, I've never had it so good, I've never had a more loving master, the family that I've been brought into, the work that I get to do, life is so good under this master that I choose now to make myself a bondservant or a doulos. Of this master, I don't want to be released, I want to be this man's slave for the rest of my life. And the two characteristics of a bondservant or a doulos is that they made this decision of their own free will. No one was forced to become a doulos in the imagery of, of, of Exodus chapter Uh, 21 and not only was it made of their own free will but it was made for life and so that's what jude is saying uh, related to his being a servant or a slave or a bond servant of jesus christ i have made this decision to be his servant he can use me however he wants in in my life Any way that he wants to I've done it voluntarily of my own free will nobody put me in a headlock Nobody put a gun to my head and I have made this commitment for life in the early church The leaders in the church and the people that made up the early church They wore this tag of bond servant as a badge of honor because it's a privilege to be able to spend our lives as a servant and and a slave of Jesus Christ because of how good he treats his servants and how good he treats his family now it's interesting that Jude doesn't mention his relationship uh, to Jesus now if I was a half-brother to Jesus you'd have known it by now I'd I'd have had a hat made up and wear it everywhere I go in town just so you know who my my, uh, my bigger brother is older brother, but uh, not everybody's as carnal as me. And and uh, and Jude doesn't mention his his relationship to Jesus. Some contend that the reason that Jesus Jude doesn't mention the relationship is because of the pain that his unbelief and that his mocking uh, produced for Jesus during his thirty three and a half years of his his uh, ministry and uh, and that because of the pain that he and Jesus's other brothers uh, created for him that he might have felt I can't you know be a Johnny come lately on this thing and start to brag up that I've always thought that this was a great thing and just kind of lay low there was a time where Jesus was going into uh this the Jerusalem for the feast of tabernacles recorded in John chapter 7 and as Jesus is, is in all of the, the Galilee and Jesus is teaching and he's ministering in the Galilee, he didn't want to go down into Judea where Jerusalem was because the Jews sought to kill him at that time. And his brothers, and Jude being one of them, comes along and says to him, listen, you know, depart from here, go down into the feast. I mean, if you're the big Messiah, you know, kind of, then uh, go, go do your thing in the place that Messiah is supposed to do their thing in Jerusalem. And they're mocking him. They're scorning this idea that he. Who do you think you are, the Messiah? I mean, if you're the go do good, do this thing. And I mean that 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 kind of stuff uh, can hurt. And uh, and then following Jesus's resurrection, Jude and James and others that came to believe in him as the Messiah. Now there are others that believe that. Jude doesn't mention the, his relationship to Jesus just simply out of modesty and, and humility, to say nothing of a, a lack of the Holy Spirit's inspiration to, to do so. He just didn't want to brag about it at all. Now notice who he's writing to. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So he doesn't write to a church in Corinth, or in Thessalonica or some particular geographical location. He's writing to all Christians. And his description of a Christian is a beautiful description. He declares us to be those that are called by God the Father. We've been called by God. There's no way we would be in a personal relationship with God Almighty today apart from His calling. He initiated that. Without his calling, his drawing us to him, not a one of us in this room would know him tonight. But he called us, and we responded to that call, but it was his calling that allowed us this privilege. Now there's a lot of false teachers that are operating in the area where this letter was going, and they were calling God's people into a lot of other things calling them away from God calling them away from the apostles doctrine and all and Jude comes in and says remember the call of God and whatever these Molary and Curly and the wise guys come along and they're all trying to call you into something else into their plan into their doctrine you can't be called to anything better than you're called to in the Father so don't let them call you somewhere else and then he says we're sanctified by God the father and the word sanctified means to be set apart for God's use that's what our lives are we're holy vessels just just like you got a guy that's going to do surgery a surgeon there and he's got all these holy sanctified instruments sterilized instruments to do the surgery we are instruments in the Lord's hand for his work but we're set aside for his work And what's what's Jude saying? I know all these false teachers are coming to you. And they got plans for your life. And they're things that they want to use your life for and your breath and your energy and your health and your strength and your mind and your soul and all of these things. But don't forget, your life is sanctified to God. It's not even an option to give our lives to somebody else. And not only are we called and sanctified by God the Father, but we are preserved in Jesus Christ. He not only calls us, He not only sanctifies us, but He preserves us, He keeps us. Our God is not only a saving God, He is a keeping God. Now, we're going to get into these false teachers and what they are into and their devices. It's crazy what these people are trying to stay faithful to the Lord in the middle of, just like what we're in the middle of in this world. And and he comes in and he reminds them right at the outset, God's going to preserve you the reason that you and I are going to make it through the spiritual minefield that planet Earth is and one day stand before the throne of God in heaven is not going to be because of any strength that we have or tremendous wisdom naturally that we have it's going to be because God preserves what he has begun in our lives he's going to bring to completion it's a beautiful description of the Christian and then he uh, greets them by declaring mercy Uh, peace and love be multiplied to you. And then in verse 3 he states the purpose of the letter, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. He said, I sat down and I wanted to write you a letter about our salvation. Just to write you a letter and talk about how good our God is, how good our Savior is. Isn't it wonderful to be saved? Isn't the greatest life a person could ever live? Can you believe we're forgiven? Can you believe we're sanctified? Can you believe we're going to be preserved and delivered in heaven and all stand before the throne of God forever and ever and worship Him there? Somebody pinch me. That's the letter he wanted to write. Or something like it. Now, but necessity... Necessity forced him to write a different kind of letter. Again, the spirit, of course, behind it. But he said, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, I I wanted to write this other letter, but because of the spiritual condition of things and what's going on, I I need to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith. What is the faith? The Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine, the Word of God, the teaching that's found in the Bible. And then notice that we're called to contend earnestly for the faith. That, those two words, contend earnestly, it comes from a single Greek word that is the basis of our English word, agonize. And he's calling upon them and us to agonize earnestly for the faith, for true doctrine to stay faithful to and contend earnestly for the truth that changed our lives because it will change other lives too, but not what these false teachers were, were bringing in. And when he says agonize earnestly or contend earnestly, it's the idea of fight for this with every ounce of your strength. So, say, well, is it just hyperbole or exaggeration or just, you know, poetic kind of uh, words for power? No, it's not, what he, it's not the reason that he says that. He says, that the reason for them to agonize in us, contend earnestly for the faith, is because this is a battle we cannot afford to lose. In every single church in this city, in every single church in this world, when the false is introduced into it one side is going to win and the other side is going to lose and we cannot lose to what is false we dare not and if it is to be lost though it won't be it is to be lost with our final breath with a final bit of strength that we have before we collapse in a heap and say there isn't any strength to take one more step or utter one more word. Everything's been spent to contend earnestly for the faith, for the truth. We've got to be victorious in this battle. And either the church in those days or today is going to be successful in resisting these false teachers and this false teaching or the false teachers and the false teaching would destroy the foundation of the faith upon which the, the church is built. And we have a responsibility to deliver the same message that some and literally millions of people laid their lives down in order for us to hear the truth that changed our lives. And we, don't have, we, we are not a generation, no generation can come along And then fail to do that same thing, if necessary, for the next generation. I'll tell you, that's a responsibility that I feel so deep inside of me. I would never, I could not face myself if knowing the price that others have paid and to know that this gospel changed my life, to say nothing of eternity, and and then for me to fail to contend, earnestly for it and and so we're indebted to those that have contended earnestly for the faith before us we have a responsibility to do the same for those that will come after us notice he says in this um, which, uh, he he is exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith and in other words everybody in the body of Christ is called to contend earnestly for the faith not just pastors not just leaders. It's not just the responsibility of, of pastors and leaders in the body of Christ. And you, you look at the, the false teaching, and we're going to talk a little bit about, what he's going to talk in, in a couple, uh, just a minute or two here, about the, the false doctrine and its Gnosticism, the Gnostic teachers. And they're coming in and just saying, hey, you can live any kind of life you want to live, and God doesn't care about that, and, and everything is uh, okay with that, and God loves you anyway kind of thing. And, and you look at how contemporary that is today. You have entire denominations embracing homosexuality. And they've already given up on the fight of heterosexual immorality. You have denominations that endorse—we'll uh, call them Christian—but they in, they endorse abortion on demand. And it is not the pastor or the leader of a church alone who is to contend earnestly for the faith it has to be everybody speaking up and saying mm-hmm no that's not what God's Word says and that's not what the truth is and that's not the life that God has called us into otherwise they just pick off two or three or a handful or a hundred or whatever of people that are at the top of something and then the whole thing goes we're all called to contend earnestly uh, for the faith. And, and it doesn't matter whether the person that's involved in the apostasy or those things, whether they wear a robe or whether they have titles or whether they have degrees or those kinds, they are to be exposed and they are to be resisted. Now notice that this faith not only is to be contended for, but it was once for all delivered to the saints which means that the the doctrine that the apostles taught, the apostles' doctrine, it's final, it is authoritative, it is not to be changed now. And if anyone comes along and wants to change it now, they are a false teacher. The Bible is not to be subtracted from. It's not to be added to. It is not the Ronco Bible. It, it is, it, and no other revelation subsequent is to come and, and be brought into a church or to another person and and put on the level of of the Bible in people's minds. This is, is been delivered to us once for all to the saints. No Book of Mormon. No no Quran. Nothing subsequent. This is the revelation from from God. Now notice he speaks now in in verse 4 of the reason for the need to contend earnestly for the faith. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. In other words, God's warned through his word that false teachers would come. Jesus spoke of of it too. Uh, tares and, and and the wheats and and wheat and all and and here uh, and then here is their doctrine: who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our lord Jesus christ notice their notice their method first, they creep in unnoticed, so when they come into a church, they don't come in and they don't have like a big brand on their forehead or some kind of identifying mark you know that here here's a heretic here's a false teacher they they just they slipped in and uh, why do they go unnoticed? Because they give the appearance that they're a Christian, that they're completely orthodox and, and biblical in and, and what they believe. And so they candidate for the pastor position in the church, and, oh, yeah, I believe all that, and, oh, sure, absolutely, oh, my, yes, and, they have, and then, then they get hired as the pastor for the church, and then everything starts to change. They're not honest, because their father, the devil, is not honest, uses deception. Comes as, they come as an angel of light, the same way that, that he did. And so they, they, this is their method. They slip in, they get firmly entrenched, and, and, uh, and then it, it, only after they do that do they then reveal what they're really about. They're very, very crafty in, in how they do things. Now notice when Jude writes this, he, he writes to this church and, and tells them that they're already in the church. They're already influencing the church, and now they need to be identified and they need to be rooted out. So that's their method subtlety and, uh, and, and deception. And then notice there he talks about uh, the, the mark that they have is that they're ungodly men. Instead of being holy men, they're un- ungodly men. You'll know them by their fruits. And then notice what their message is again who turn the grace of our god into lewdness and deny the only lord god and our lord jesus christ so they come in and and they have uh two two messages when, when they come in and and try to take take things over and and what what jude is dealing with is the same thing that john was dealing with again gnostic doctrine and the gnostics taught that the the physical universe the the material universe including these bodies that it is evil that only the spirit realm is is a holy and a good realm and so within the Gnostics it produced two particular camps and there was one camp within the Gnostics who said well if this body or this flesh material body is evil then what I got to do is I've got to deny it I've got to beat it Uh, I've I've got to be harsh and and strict with it, and they became legalists. They became the ascetics in in the movement. But there was another group that wasn't really interested in that, that kind of a life, and they looked and said, well, wait a second, we can come up with something better than that. So if the body is evil, and there's nothing you can do, according to their teaching, to make it anything but evil then we'll just compartmentalize this thing, and if the spirit is good and the body is evil, then I'll tell you what what we'll figure this thing out to be, is that that you can do anything you want in your body. You can sin as much as you want in, in your body, and your body is this just one part of you, but the spirit side of you is unaffected by what you do with your body, so you can be holy in the eyes of God, no matter what kind of life you're living. Isn't that convenient? (laughs) You look at that and say, well a man came up with that for sure. And and of course the Bible and, and God knows nothing of this compartmentalization. He says, if you love me you'll you'll obey my commandments. You'll know a tree by its fruit. And so they came in and they they taught they turned the grace of our God into to lewdness and they were basically just saying listen god is gracious he doesn't care what kind of life we live he accepts anyone and 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 uh, and everything you can live any way that you want and, and god's all all right with it and and uh, and you're still pleasing to god in all of that and 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 god is gracious and he'll forgive you and he overlooks all those things and he understands and we we're all born this way you know and and stuff like that and and what they're doing is they're taking the grace of of God and they're turning it into lewdness as an excuse to live a lewd or sinful life Paul wrote about it when he he wrote to the Romans and he said what shall we say then chapter 6 of Romans shall we continue in sin that grace may abound certainly not how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it God's grace is is multifaceted the Bible says and, and it is in our life one Glorious aspect of God's grace is His forgiveness of our lives and of our sin. Praise the Lord tonight for His grace manifested in the forgiveness of our sins. But that's not the only way that God's grace is revealed in the life of a Christian. He also gives us the grace by His Holy Spirit to live a different kind of life. To live a holy life. He gives us the power to obey His Word and to live a life that looks like Christ. And what the false teachers were doing is they were coming in and completely emphasizing the forgiveness side of things to a point of excess and not talking anything about grace that God gives to live a holy life and to live a Christ-like life. And then the second characteristic of of their false doctrine that they were bringing into the churches is is that they were denying the only lord god and our lord jesus christ and so they denied what the bible taught about jesus they denied him as the messiah they denied him as being divine God in human flesh, they rejected His authority, they rejected His teaching, they re- certainly rejected His uh, teaching that He was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but, but by Him. So anything they didn't like about Jesus, they, they just rejected and, and uh, so those were the, the two characteristics of their, their doctrine that they were bringing in and, and teaching to people, probably with greater subtlety than Jude lays it out here. Now notice as he heads into verse 5 that Jude um, reminds the church there. And, and gonna, he reminds them of three times in in divine history in the history of creation and and God's work and all gives them three examples of when the majority of good people were swayed toward evil by a very small minority when when human history and even angelic history paid a terrible price when godly people failed to resist false teaching and false teachers, and the judgment that then came upon everyone because of a failure to contend earnestly for what was true. And the first example that he gives, and Jude assumes a tremendous knowledge uh, of his reader of the Old Testament. I'll have to assume the same thing because of in the interest of time here tonight. But he says, verse 5, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And he's talking about a time in the history of the children of Israel when unbelief infiltrated two million of the Jews that were delivered from uh, through the Exodus delivered from Egypt. And then you remember, they came to Kadesh Barnea and the 12 strata. Uh, Spies were sent into the land to spy out the land that God had told the children of Israel go in It was a command. It wasn't a suggestion Go in and take the land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It is your portion. I'm giving it to you. Go in and take it. The twelve went in, spied out the land for a number of days. They came back, and uh, uh, Joshua and Caleb came with a good report, and they told the children of Israel, It's everything God said it was and more. Let's, you know, uh, pack up and get on in there. Then there were ten of the spies. Oh, no, no. Wait a second. There's giants in the land. And they're so big, they'll just squish us. We'll be like locusts under their feet. I don't know the last time you you stepped on a locust, but it it was a mismatch, wasn't it? And so they said, no, we're going to get wiped out. And the unbelief of ten spies went out and it permeated the hearts of two to three million people until they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb for even suggesting that they go in and take the land. And God looked at that rebellion against him and he said, You're afraid of your children that they're going to be destroyed in obeying my word and, and all of this kind of thing. Your children will go in and take the land. You will not. And that entire generation died in the wilderness because of, of their unbelief in the word and in the commands of, of God. Here's the application. These false teachers had come in and they were trying to convince the people to evaluate what they were teaching uh, above the Word of God, to raise it above the Word of God, elevate it above the Word of God. And Jude warns them not to do it. It always ends in disaster. He is saying to them and to us, if you don't think a few false teachers in a large congregation of even two to three million can do a lot of damage, you better think again and you better reread your history. Because it happened at Kadesh Barnea. Even ten of these folks is dangerous. And then he moves on in verse six to a second illustration of when a small minority influenced a larger majority for evil and he said and the angels who did not keep their proper domain or uh, the um, how, how does it put it in the old King James their first estate what is it their first habitation Tom what kind of an adulterated version are you reading there I'm just I'm just kidding is that what it says habitation what is the, what is the, who has a translation that says first estate? What is it? Well, what Bible are you reading back there? What is that? Okay, first estate, but what, what version of the Bible? King James? We got, what do we got? We got two King James here doing something different here. How many of you vote for first estate? Just a quick show of hand. All right. Well, that's what I like. I like the old King James better on this. They did not keep their first estate, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So, the fall, he, he teaches here and talks about the danger of rebellion, unbelief in verse five. But from history, the danger of rebellion, open rebellion against God's word. And the false teachers were teaching the people to openly rebel against the teaching of the Word of God. And Jude reminds them of the danger of rebellion by reminding them of the angels who did not keep their proper domain or their first habitation or their first estate. Got everybody happy included in that? I don't know. want to know what the NIV says or the New American Standard. So he reminds them of the angels who didn't keep their first estate. And this refers to the angels who followed Lucifer or Satan in his rebellion against God. And there's an indication in the book of Revelation that a third of the angels, we don't know how many angels there are in creation, but a third of the angels and the angelic host followed Satan in that rebellion against God. And, and with the devil, that, that uh, group of fallen angels makes up the, the demonic realm today. Now, it, it would appear, uh, as, as Jude writes this, that there are two groups of angels in existence today. There's one group, demons, who are actively uh, working under the... Uh, oversight and direction of the devil today and they're the same ones that Jesus dealt with 2000 years ago as he cast them out of people and and all of these different kind of things the same demons and devils that we have to to fight against today in, in our our spiritual warfare but notice here in in verse 6 he writes about another group of angels that's chained reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. That's pretty heavy. To think about the fact that as evil as the world is today under demonic influence, that there is an entire category of demon that hasn't been released yet, but will be released during the Great Tribulation. I don't want to be here during the Great Tribulation. And I'm not going to be here during the Great Tribulation because Jesus is going to take me home. Now, it's interesting that Satan, in his rebellion, why did he rebel? He wasn't content with what God had made him. He wasn't content with what God had called him to be and out of his pride and all, and out of his desire for position and, and wanting to be on the same level as God, he led a rebellion against God and against His, his authority. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will be like the Most High uh, God. Isaiah chapter 14 re- records concerning the, the uh, re- revolt that he, that he, he led. And he puts himself on a par with God. And so does everyone else who elevates their teaching and their ideas above the Word of God. It is to follow the devil in his rebellion against the Word of God, being content with what God has called us to to be. And how many people elevate, you think about that, in the body of Christ, how many Christian books and how casually man, even religious man, elevates his ideas above the Word of God. It's frightening to do that. And it, it represents an unbelief directed toward the Word of God. And so, not content with what God had called them to be, a large portion of the angelic realm followed Satan in his proud rebellion. Just one false teacher, so to speak, let a third of the angels, in his, his false teaching, in the application. These false teachers had come into the churches. They were attempting to make people discontented with what God had called them to be as Christians. What we are and our first estate that that's not good enough, that they can offer something better than that and to follow them in their ideas of what God ought to be like and how we ought to save people and deal with people and all of this. And in essence, Jude declares that it's nothing more than just a pride-based rebellion against the Word of God that is as old as the devil and his rebellion against God's way. And then notice in, in verse 7, he talks about the danger of exalting ungodly passion over obedience to the Word of God. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So here are these false teachers, and, and they were teaching doesn't matter to God what kind of of life you live doesn't matter how much you, know, you do this or sexual immorality or any you know, lust that your flesh has. Go ahead and, and just you know, express it in any way that you want. It doesn't matter to God what kind of a sinful life that we would live or anything. It doesn't matter. And so Jude reminds them and us of the danger of living an immoral life as is illustrated in Sodom and Gomorrah where homosexuality, sexual perversion was rampant there in 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 the two cities and the surrounding cities you remember the two angels came in to sodom lot saw him out there sun's going down you guys need to come and stay with me no we're okay we'll be all right we're out here (laughs) you need to come under my house and i'll take care of you So Lot takes him to his house, they have a nice dinner and all, they're ready to lay down and and go to sleep, and all of the men of the city gather together, and they come and they begin to beat on the wall of uh, the door of Lot's house, and they begin to demand that those two, nobody knew they were angels except the angels. That these two evidently very attractive men be you know put outside the door so they might know them carnally they might be sexually in, 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 use them for, for the night and, and lots of no no they're in my house hospitality and all that kind of stuff and the angel reaches in, pulls him inside the house smites all of them with 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 blindness and and uh, and, and so the following morning. Following the removal of Lot and his, his wife, almost, <laughs> and, and the, the daughters, the Lord destroyed the cities with fire and brimstone. And it, it, it didn't matter that everyone in the city of Sodom was practicing sexual immorality. That did not make it right. God had condemned it in His Word, and He judged it. So what's the application? The false teachers were teaching that if your passions tell you to do one thing and God's Word tells us to do something different, it's all right to obey our sinful desires. And again, Jude says, gentlemen, you better reread your Bible <laughs> because when in not believe these false teachers, when they declare that it doesn't matter to God what kind of life we, we are living. And you look at how many... Churches are caving today on these very same issues, as if the book of Jude is not in the Bible at all. And then notice he begins in verse 8, and he begins to talk about the characteristics of these false teachers. He said, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh. In other words, anybody that believes that the life that we live doesn't uh, matter to God, they're dreaming. They, d- they don't have, they, they have lost touch with reality. They reject authority. And these false teachers, they reject any God given authority, like pastors and elders and deacons and church leadership, even the authority of the Bible. When the Bible or these leaders call upon these people to repent of their sin and their false doctrine, they simply disregard uh, church authority. And then not only that, but they speak evil of dignitaries they're very very bold in in their uh rejection of god placed uh, authority and he gives the example here yet michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of moses dared not bring against him a reviling accusation but said the lord rebuke you now what we do know about The body of Moses is that when he died, he died in the fullness of of his strength. And uh, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 34 that so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he, the Lord, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor abated. So the Lord, uh, he buried Moses, so none of the rest of the children of Israel would know uh, where he was buried. Why? They build a shrine or something like that, begin to watch some kind of idolatry related. There would be the temptation for that. And so we learn from this passage that evidently God had given the task of the burial of Moses, had turned it over to uh, the archangel Michael. He was in charge of the task. And in the course of, of obeying what God told him to do with Moses, Satan disputed with Michael over Moses' body. Doesn't care, I don't care what God told you to do with that body. I don't care about God's Word. I don't care about His commandments. Any of these kinds of things. I want that body. And, and, and then what did, uh, what did Michael, how did he respond to him? He didn't respond with a reviling accusation. He responded with, the Lord Rebuke you, And here's the point. Just as Michael resisted the false teaching and the ungodly contention of the devil, the false teachers are to be resisted also. But we need to do it in a non-contentious way. And how do we do that? By standing on God's Word and letting God's Word rebuke them. The authority that we have for what we do comes from the Word of God. So we don't come down to people's level and yell and get in their face and spit coming out of our mouths and veins popping out all over the place. When you're right and you have God's Word as a basis for what we're doing, then that's all that we need. This is what Paul was talking about a little bit when he wrote to Timothy. And he said, And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So when we stand against what is false, we don't, you know, oh, yeah, well, you know, tap, tap, no erases to you, too, or, you know, whatever the equivalent of all that is. But we just say, no, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. That's the authority for our doctrine and for our practice and for resisting false teachers. But these, he said, in verse 10, they speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts in these things they corrupt themselves now these false teachers these gnostics were going around saying we're the super spiritual people we know things that you don't know we're holier than than you and that's why when you see us engaged in sin and everything you still think it's sin because you don't have the revelation you haven't been through the 12 layers of the whatever you know to see how how what true spirituality is and and so they were putting this whole thing on on, uh, on everyone and Jude comes in and says no they're not spiritual it I- at all he says in fact they're just like brute beasts they're just like animals they're living like like uh, animals don't think that they're you know something something spiritual in in any way they're the slaves of their flesh they're living like animals don't follow them in their their teaching and in their ways and then he says woe to them for they have gone the way of cain now the way of cain cain in the old testament was a poster child for self-righteousness And remember God came to to Cain and to Abel and uh, he had declared to Cain and Abel, they were brothers and they were uh, sons of of, uh, Adam and Eve. And God declared how he was to be approached by them through faith and that faith evidenced in an animal sacrifice. And Abel obeyed God and Cain disobeyed God. Instead of offering to God what God desired, what did Cain do? He devised his own man-made way of approaching God. And that's what these false teachers were doing. And it's just arrogance and and it's pride. And we cannot approach God based upon our own man-made ideas and theories. We can only approach Him on the basis of the way that He has approved through Jesus Himself. But, the, but Cain comes along and says, no, you, everybody gets to God and everybody gets to define their own way to God and, and God's okay with, with all of that. And that's what, that's what they, they were doing. But not only have they gone the way of Cain, they've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. And Balaam was an Old Testament uh, prophet who got greedy. And uh, rather than being wanting to be faithful to God, he told Balak, who was a, a king of Moab, uh, he told Balak how to bring judgment on the children of Israel. In, in essence, he said to, to to Balak, who had hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel, he said, "You you cannot curse these people from without. Their God is too great, and so you'll never defeat them that way. But their God is not only a great God; He is also a jealous God." And if you can take your Moabitess women and have them take their idols, go into the tents of the young Jewish men, and then, uh, you know, offer themselves sexually to the young men, and as everything's getting more and more heated and all, they pull out their idols and, you know, kind of demand that this be the worship of what's going on here in the tent and everything, and if that kind of thing happens, you, uh, uh, then, they, then God will be forced to judge them, but they will bring God's judgment upon themselves. That's that's the only way you can defeat God's people, and and Balak uh, took and and uh, took Balaam's counsel there, made him rich through the counsel, and ended up uh, defeating the children of Israel in that way. And and when Balak did this whole thing, twenty-four thousand among the children of Israel died in the plague that came out of that. And what and, and how did it happen? Under the guise of a false prophet. He, under the guise of serving God, Balaam led the children of Israel into sin. And he brought great judgment on them. And like Balaam of old Judah saying, these false teachers are trying to give the appearance of serving God, but all the while they are leading God's people into sin, into idolatry, into sexual immorality, and there's judgment on the other side of it. He's just giving them a history lesson from, from their, own, their own Old Testament. And then he brings up another uh, example, bad example from the Old Testament and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And you perhaps remember Korah. Korah led a rebellion against Moses and against his brother Aaron. And as you guys take too much onto yourself and this is uh, nepotism and who are you to be bossing us around. And the interesting thing about Korah is that he was a Levite. He had tremendous privilege in service to the Lord. But he comes in and says, Listen, it's not any fair for you guys to be the head leaders of this thing. We're all as smart as you. We're all as good as you. And he he led a rebellion against the God-given authority of Moses and Aaron. And and ultimately, the Lord judged Korah, and everyone that was with him opened up the earth and, and swallowed them up and swallowed up everything that they had. Now, those of you, if you ever say, listen, uh, you can own all of these things and you can't take it with you. Nobody takes it with you. One guy did. But it wasn't of much use to them when the earth closed back up on things. So there's one exception uh, to that. So these false teachers, they're leading a rebellion against God's given, uh, God-given authority of the pastors, of the elders, of the deacons in the church, and they were who were resisting their false teaching and their attempts at self-promotion and you can imagine what they were doing. who do you think you are to confront us and tell us we're as smart as you we're as good as you we're not going to put up with with this and and Jude warns steer clear of those folks uh, judgment is coming and and it is not unprecedented in in history and then he goes on and he says they are spots in your love feasts and uh, they ruined the, the communion services and the love feast. I mean, here they are, they're taking, the love feast was a meal that was associated with communion, and you're taking the symbol of Jesus' body, the bread, the symbol of his blood, the cup and all, and, and as, as they're partaking of these things, here are teachers that are in that same meeting who are denying who Jesus is they're denying that he's the messiah they're denying him as the son of god they are denying his power to change a life and and his teaching about what he wants his disciples to be and they were ruining the lord's supper for the church they were they were spots on on the love feast by by their very presence and they feast with you without fear serving only themselves they're clouds without uh, without water carried about by the winds and so they look like they're going to give rain but they never give you any rain they promise things but they never deliver and of course rain was valuable in those days and what is true of that kind of a cloud was true of then they promised they promised and now this you will do this and then we'll do this and then you'll you know be spiritually mature and then it'll click and then and then and then they never deliver it He describes them as late autumn trees without fruit. Now, in late autumn, if a tree doesn't have fruit by late autumn, it's not going to have fruit. So there's no reason for a tree not to have fruit at that point. But they're late autumn trees without fruit, and not only that are they fruitless, but they're twice dead, pulled up by the roots. In other words, they are dead, they are incapable of producing fruit in another person's life. They're raging waves of the seas foaming up their own shame. They're, you know, big and loud and boisterous, but uh, all that they produce is shame, and if you follow them, you'll follow them into the the same shame that is theirs. wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness uh, forever. So wandering stars, it speaks of shooting stars. You know, it's a wandering star. Wow, lights up the whole, it's brighter than all the other stars in the sky for about, you know, one minute. So he says, these guys, they shine like this for about a minute, but then, then they're, they're gone. Don't follow them. Don't set your uh, sextet to them. They can't lead you anywhere safe because they're not going anywhere safe themselves. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? They are. Are headed to uh, hell themselves. And not only can't they lead anyone to heaven, they're not headed to heaven themselves. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Notice talking about Jesus' second coming, because it's a judgment that this is this is referring to. It doesn't say that he comes for ten thousands of his saints, but he comes with ten thousands of his saints. That's us to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodly is used five times in in the one verse. Uh, We can surmise that uh, Jude is not impressed with ungodliness. He talks about their speech, their grumblers, they're complainers, and uh, the reason they grumble and they complain is because uh, they don't get to fulfill all of their lusts, walking according to their own lusts. They mouth great swelling words and uh, tremendous oratory abilities, uh, and then, but they flatter people to gain advantage. They know how to work a crowd, you know, for an offering, and uh, they, were, they were good at that. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. When he talks about them being mockers, uh, Jude reminds them that the apostles had spoken of the fact that when these false teachers came, that, that, they, that they would also be mockers and not to be surprised by it. One of, the, one of the most effective weapons of the enemy is mocking. If he can't argue something away, then he comes in and he, he'll try and attempt mockery. But you notice what the reason behind the mockery is. And the reason behind their mocking is that they reject God's truth, who would, uh, who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. In other words, the reason that they mock the Word of God and the standard of God is not an intellectual reason, but it is a sin reason. And they mock the Word of God because, not because they, they think, oh, there's an intellectual problem with being a Christian, but because the Word of God denies them a sin that they love more than they would ever love God at this point in time. Isn't it interesting you watch this whole fight that's been going on last three or four years related to the public display of the Ten Commandments in the United States of America? You know we gotta have. I mean, there's a separation of church and state, and I mean we just can't have the Ten Commandments out here in front of, every, you know, in the whole. De- and they got all the intellectual reasons, so to speak. And then they mock the Word of God, they mock the Law of God, they mock the standard of God. You know, all you have to do. Never go up to one of those people and say, you know, could you tell me about the deep intellectual problems that you have with Christianity? All you have to do is go up and say, what sin do you love that God tells you no to? And then you'll have the reason behind the mocking. And that's always the way that it is. Jesus spoke of it when He spoke to uh, Nicodemus. And then notice now, He closes the letter by saying, but you... now." All of, This is what the false is all about. This is what's happening with them. But now, in contrast to that, this is what is to characterize our lives as, as Christians. But you, beloved, how to stand in this, this uh, apostate environment. You say, I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat. How do you stand in the midst of this and not get sucked into all of it? But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And so the number one thing for standing in the midst of of all of this, not falling prey to, to false teaching, he says building yourself up in the most holy faith. Stay in the Word of God. Stay in the Word of God. Make the Word of God the single most influential thing in your life. And then notice in verse 20, he says, number two, praying in the Spirit. Keep praying. Not just lifting things up to the Lord, but stop in prayer and let the Holy Spirit direct you into what to pray. And then when you lift things up to the Lord, stop for a few minutes in prayer and see if God will say something to you about what you've lifted up to Him. Praying, to the Lord, staying in, you know, contact with uh, headquarters in the middle of, of all of this, the throne of God, and then he tells us that we need to keep ourselves in the love of God. And, and uh, what he's basically saying there, in addition to stay in the Word of God, keep praying, he's saying there is obey the Word of God. I, th- I think Chuck Smith has a classic uh, illustration related to this. I guess there was an old hymn that said... Um, you know, stay under the spout where the blessings come out. <laughs> so you, you you can envision a gigantic faucet up here on the wall, and as the faucet comes out and the water's coming straight down, obedience to God's word keeps me right under the flow of water, the fullness of the expression of God's love in my life. That's all the obediences they get you over you know rob you of fullness and all that all those commandments are designed to keep me right here in the fullness of, of those blessings being poured out uh, on on our lives and, and so he says, now just stay obedient to uh, the word of God because it keeps you in that place and then the fourth thing in verse 21 he talks about the return uh, of the lord and in uh, and, and looking to uh, for jesus and and his uh, return. And, and so as we look expectantly for Jesus to return for his church, we're looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. So maintain the eternal perspective in, in all of this. And keeping our eyes on Jesus protects us from, from false teaching and false teachers. And so those are the ways to, to, uh, to stay protected from all of this. Now, as he closes this, He's, he's been pretty hard, you know, in what he's been laying out. So he wants to make sure we don't misunderstand something. He's going to qualify it a little further here in verses 22 and 23. He said, on some have compassion, taking, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, even hating the garment defiled by the flesh. So he's talking about those that have been um, sucked into the false teaching. And he said, don't treat them all the same way. Uh, some of them have been pulled into this false teaching, and the best way that you can come to them and pull them back out of it is, is to sit, take a chair next to them and say, well, let's think about this a little bit in the light of God's Word, and you just kind of walk them through with encouragement, and they'll pop out of the false. But there's another kind of person that won't do that. And, and that kind of person, you just sometimes have to go up and say, you know, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. What you're teaching is false, and you better get out of this because it's going to land you in hell. And, and you do that with that particular person, and they'll pop out. But there's different personalities. How many of you, um, you know, came uh, to know the Lord through encouragement, just a show of hands? Somebody just came in, the goodness of God led you to repentance. Real how many of you came to know the Lord? Somebody just came in and rocked your world. I mean, the gospel, boom. You're on your way to hell. Turn or burn, you better get, because you, you, don't, you don't guarantee another breath kind of thing. How many of you came in that way? See, there's all kinds of different people, aren't there? And, and, and you have to respond to them in, in, in different ways. So there's to be that differentiation between the two. And then he closes with one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of the Bible. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling. I mean, they're in the middle of all of these false teachers trying to trip them up, all of this false teaching, all of this, am I going to make it, you know, kind kind of a thing. And he puts their eyes back on Jesus, to Him who is able to keep us from falling. So once again, he reassures us of God's ability to preserve us, no matter what the spiritual environment of the world is. And not only that... Not only is he able to keep us from stumbling or falling, but then to present us faultless before the presence of his glory. In other words, and and we need to hear it. And he comes along and says, you're going to make it. You're going to get into heaven one day. And just be assured of that because of the Savior that is in your life. But not only does he tell them that Jesus is going to, God is going to keep us from stumbling, that, he's, that we're going to end up in heaven one day, but He is going to uh, present us in heaven with exceeding joy. Now, that's, the, that's maybe the biggest miracle of all, isn't it? You say, well, you know, we'll get in, and you smell a little bit like smoke getting into heaven. You, know? you say, And God will say, well, you know, listen, don't you, I'm not presenting you. You go, you're in, be happy. And uh, you know, the cafeteria will be open later. You eat there. We'll have the banquet tables over, over here. He's going to, every one of us, he's going to present with exceeding joy to the Father. And what a Savior we have. And then he closes with this praise to the Lord in light of this. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. The false teachers don't have anything that compares with him.